Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Nasori and this week I'm joined as ever by my co-host Luke Chiverton. Hi John. And two guests we're really looking forward to talking to. Back for a second appearance, we've got Professor Mark Jones from Manchester Metropolitan University's widely respected psychology department. Hi Mark. Hi John, hi Luke. And making his football psychology show bow, we've got Dr Andy Hill, Blackburn Rose psychologist. Hi, Andy. Hi, guys. Great to have you on the show. Mark, good to have you back. I think we last spoke to you just over a year ago. What's going on in your world at the moment? Any interesting research projects happening? Yeah, no, thanks uh, very much. I think it was at the start of lockdown that we uh, that we managed to catch up. Um, yeah, so we're doing our continuing our work in stress, health, and performance. We've got a few projects on the go uh, across different domains, working um, some in sports, some in uh, defence and security settings, and also doing some work with the uh, European Space Agency, looking at how people adapt to isolated and confined settings in preparation for uh, lunar missions going forward. So we're collecting some interesting data with colleagues um, in a facility outside Moscow where people have gone for eight months uh, to practice for a lunar mission and we're collecting some data on how they manage the demands of that environment and um, perform as well doing the tasks they do in that environment. So uh, that's one of our interesting projects that we have ongoing at the moment. Sounds really interesting Mark and and, and Andy welcome to the show making your, your football psychology show debut from from a psychologist's point of view how are you dealing with the nerves or, or excitement well first of all how on earth do you follow lunar exploration as a topic <laughs> um just don't know where to go with that one uh but yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean that sounds sounds like an amazing project that one. um yeah it's 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 been a crazy time but yeah we've got a uh, quite a lot on um certainly football wise uh, it, it's been a really good time for us at the club um you know, away from that, we also worked with the IS, so we've had the, the old Tokyo experience, which was pretty crazy. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. So, yeah, it's been uh, been an eventful time. And Andy, just for, for, for listeners that, that, that might not be familiar with your work at, at Blackburn, do you spend most of your time working with the, the academy setup or the, the first team? How, how does it kind of break down? So I spend most of my time working with the academy setup. So I've been there for nearly seven years now. Um, but my work has kind of spanned pretty much the whole of the club at various different points. So I've worked at board level. Uh, I've worked the first team, you know, bits of first team, but predominantly, um, predominantly academy, uh, which is it's kind of really rewarding because, you know, the academy's it's in a really good place at the moment. It's doing really well. Um, we've had something around about 570 consecutive first-team matches with an academy graduate in the first-team squad. So, yeah, it's, it's going well at the moment for us. And uh, the first-team are flying at the moment, which is something I don't think many people expected. Yeah, you, you can kind of pick up the surprise in your voice. There, <laughs> yeah. Bit, yeah, I'm one of those people that didn't expect it, if I'm honest. Uh, and Andy, I, I think yeah, there's, there's some incredible numbers there, 570 consecutive games. That that, that really is, is fantastic. And obviously we're seeing... Clubs increasingly focus their attention on their their academy programs and kind of even younger than that. So I, th- I think Arsenal recently announced that they'd actually recruited uh, a five year old by the name of Zayn Ali Salman, who's the, the youngest ever development program recruit. And I suppose with your psychologist hat on, Andy, um, with with youngsters of that age coming into the game and, and with those announcements being made publicly. Um, what kind of psychological support are you providing and, and, and generally speaking, kind of clubs providing for young players? I, I think on, on that one, um, I don't know the exact details of the uh, kid at Arsenal, but I, I know that the academy programme doesn't start officially till under nine. I think anything before that's more of a pre-academy. Um, so I know it's probably a technicality, but there, there are a few, I guess, grey areas around that. But even so, football was always traditionally thought of as a uh, more of a late specialisation sport. It's rapidly become a very, very early specialisation sport. And I guess people just want, you know, on the assumption that if kids do more earlier, they'll come out better quicker, I suppose. Um, but for young kids, I think I think a few of the things that we take are quite fortunate. My my PhD was in the psychology of talent development specifically, so and that's why the academy thing fits quite quite well with, with me and my background. 
I think there's, there's a few things that we try and focus on, really, uh, from our perspective. First of all, is, is trying to help develop an emotional literacy within, within the children and getting them to understand a little bit about what they're experiencing, what they're feeling, the type of emotions that they have, because it, it's all very new and it's all very strange. And, you know, the types of environments that we're putting the children into uh, are quite unique. So having an understanding around that, um, having an understanding around actually what does it take to get to the top? So what's that journey going to look like? Um, you know, it's not a straight line. Uh, better early doesn't necessarily mean the best at the end. Um, it is a, you know, to kind of phrase, it's a rocky road to the top. And I think around that, there's a bit of education there around, you know, it's, it's actually not about how good you are. It's more about how you, how well you develop from your setbacks and, and how well you can learn and that side of things. And that education around, you know, helping the parents reinforce that message as well. I think one of the things with parents coming in at, at that age, where parents coming in with the children at entry level two academies is that they're coming from a, a, a grassroots program and it is, it is different. You know, there's sometimes if, if your kid's talented, there's probably a bit of a, for want of a better word, a fight to get them in to an academy um, and you get them in and then but it's different because all of a sudden your kid's not the best anymore so how do you how do you manage that um, another longer term issue that we tend to find is that you know a little bit later on in the academy experience when people have been in there for, for quite a while is that identity foreclosure so basically their entire identity is wrapped up in being a footballer and that's not particularly healthy so you know, we do try and stop that happening where possible. But yeah, there's, there's lots of, in short, because that was a really long answer to a fairly simple question. Um, there's, there's a lot of different strategies that we use to address a few issues. Yeah, it was a long answer, but it was uh, it was really, really interesting. Um, it, are, are all clubs kind of um, doing a lot on the psychology side uh, when it comes to their, their young players coming in at the, at the beginning of the academy? Yeah, on the whole... As far as I'm aware, certainly. I know that uh, there are different criteria now. So the way the academy systems are categorised in the in England, uh, category one to four, and they have um, minimum requirements on psychology provision, and they vary across the category. So we're a category one academy. Uh, the minimum requirement for us is to have the equivalent of full-time provision psychology support in, the, in place. And, and, you know, that kind of filters down. I know a lot of clubs do go over and above that, uh, even further down. So there's, there's, there is a lot of psychology provision in place in academy football, and it is something that is taken seriously. Andy, I, there, was a, there was an interview that we conducted recently with, with Dr. Dr. Misha Jervis, who's a consultant at, at Wickham Wanderers, and it was really interesting because she talks in a similar vein about making sure that that youngsters have an identity away from football. I think she referenced a, a parents group where she asked the, the parents to, to talk about kind of a specific aspect of, of their, their children's character, which they were kind of particularly proud of, but they weren't allowed to talk about football. And, and she said that some of the, some of the parents did struggle um, a little bit, actually. It, how much of a challenge is that for, for you in, in kind of such a demanding environment as, as an academy? Well, I, I think, you know, it, it is a challenge, but just going on to the point there around the parents, it, it's probably an even bigger challenge being a parent of uh, an aspiring footballer. I think the demands that are placed on them are nothing short of phenomenal, really, um, around traveling and, and, and time uh, away and and supporting that and that, I guess that all feeds into that narrative around that that actually you know you, you, you can be successful you can be a good footballer you can you know you, that, that gets messaged from an early age and I think children kind of pick up on that quite quickly and um, you know there's, there's, there are lots of different things that that you can do to try and address that but we are big you know we have life skills programs for our, for our scholars, for example, and a, a lot of clubs do similar things, just to try and open up their experiences. Because essentially we're taking time away from other opportunities for children to, to develop other skills and other interests. And football becomes a monopoly. And, it, you know, is that right? I think there's a, there's a question there that probably needs further investigation. 
Uh, Mark, bringing you into this, um, what, what's your take on, on the benefits or, or I guess even the pitfalls of sports people getting involved in sports so early and, 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 and the dangers that holds for them in terms of their focus on, on making it as a professional sports person? I think it's a, it's a really interesting um, topic and I'd echo what, uh, what Andy said earlier. I think there's a couple of things I'd, uh, um, if, if I could segue into a slightly different sport um, just to start off with and then I can, uh, I'll move on to, I think Harry Maguire gave a really good example of this, um, the Manchester United and England uh, footballer and I'll, uh, uh, I'll talk about specialisation because it, it is an interesting area. We, we did some work, um, one of our MSc students actually interviewed um, a number of uh, rugby players over in Ireland to get their get their understanding of 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 career development and uh, they'd noticed because rugby gone professional during the time that they had been playing they noticed that there was an increase in parents wanting their children to specialize in rugby early on because it gave them a better chance of or their perception was it gave them a better chance of success you can have a career in rugby so actually the players are saying what they're seeing now is the parents would bring their children in early and say look just as you can in football you can have a career in football the best way to be a footballer is to do nothing but play football from a very early age Whereas interestingly, lots of sports people talk very positively about experiencing and playing lots of different sports. So they take skills and experiences from different sports into their eventual career. And Harry Maguire gave a good example of that. And I forget uh, the sports he mentioned, but he talked about playing rugby. He talked about playing football. I think he talked about playing cricket as well. And he said he enjoyed playing all of those sports because he took something from each of those and what's always interesting as well is Andy mentioned that earlier that you know you have certain standards and perceptions of competence, how good you think you are, and if you're a really good footballer, you you have your confidence and esteem and ego associated with with being a really good footballer. But actually, if you're not that good a cricketer or not that good a rugby player or not that good a tennis player, it actually helps you develop the skills of of learning how to compete when maybe you're not the not the strongest person uh, on the court or not the strongest person on the pitch. And you're learning different skills that you get exposed to there. So I think psychologically, as well as from a motor development point of view, being able to play lots of different sports and not specialising too early um, can, can, can be, an, be an advantage. Mark, that's really that's really interesting. I, I, I can I can certainly identify with with not being the the kind of most skilled person on the on the pitch or the uh, of the tennis court. Um, not sure that's done a lot for my my football career, but I I just there are uh, always just, exceptions, John. Always yeah. exceptions. <laughs> just um, just kind of picking up on on one of the points there that you made. So some some examples. I think Phil Phil Neville was a, a really kind of classic example that's always created isn't he I, th- I think I think Andy right, and Andy Flintoff kind of came out and said that when he was a youngster at, at Lancashire um Phil Neville was 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 basically a better cricketer than, than than he was and I think I think Neville's kind of gone on to say that you know having um having that kind of experience definitely kind of helped his his overall approach to um to football Gary Lineker certainly was a very good cricketer, and he played, he played snooker as well. I think wasn't he? He's a good, <laughs> good snooker player. So I think I, I think there are you know lot, lots of ex- not surprisingly lots of examples of of, of individuals who are good um, or have talent in different sports and then specialise uh, a bit later. There's n- there's never a linear path, which I'm sure Andy will uh, um, you know mentioned earlier. There's never a linear path to the top, and there's never a a right or a wrong way to do it. But certainly in terms of some of the research that we spoke to with some professionals athletes their suggestion was always to have a broader base and a broader experiences of different sports they thought that was helpful of course you get survivor bias there that the individuals who who make it to the top always always talk about what they did to get there and so uh, um you know you you get that uh, that element as uh, as well just in terms of the psychological support that children get we did some research with a with a colleague um, Dr. Paul McCarthy was now at uh, Glasgow Caledonian University, and he was interested in children's perceptions of psychological skills. You know, the strategies like goal setting, imagery, self talk, um, and relaxation strategies, and and how young children in particular understood these types of techniques. And he also asked children what they enjoyed about sport. And not surprisingly, you know, we found that actually as children get older, they do have 
you know, a better understanding of some of the psychological strategies that people like myself, a sports psychologist, would try to use with them. In particular, they understood concepts like goal setting and imagery. And of course, as kids develop by the age of 12, you know, they're getting in into um, they're getting more capable of abstract thought. But the younger children could understand goal setting and imagery okay, but were less confident on on understanding relaxation and self-talk. And the younger children below 12, you know, those are a bit more abstract concepts. How do you talk to yourself? What are the types of things that you say to them say to yourself? They struggled a little bit to understand those. In terms of what kids enjoyed, and that's a that's a, a question that's worth worth discussing really if we talk about talent ID, you know, children are committed or as individuals, we tend to be more committed to things that we are competent at. And that's certainly true for children as well, that we tend to be more committed to things that we have good friendships and social connections with. So I will tend to do things that I think I'm broadly okay at and that I have some friends there to to share that with. And, and children would talk in very similar terms about sport as well. But also certainly for the younger, for all children, actually, mastery was important. They liked to think they were learning. They liked to think they were getting better. And they would do things they were good at. They would provide, provided they have sort of good social connections and good friends with them. And also they like to feel as though they're upskilling themselves, that they're getting better, that they're developing. And those seem to be the the, the key things that came through from us in terms of understanding children's enjoyment in sport. And if we're talking about young children um, in an academy, then all the best academies would really be focusing in on, 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 on some of those uh, um, elements as well. That's a really interesting point, Mark, about um, the, the kind of psychological awareness of, of, of youngsters playing sport. A question for Andy here, I guess. Do you think that the players coming through the academy, um, you know, that have had psychological support from a very young age and, and that kind of emotional literacy and that ability to kind of comprehend what they're going through when they're playing a sport in terms of the mental side of things? Have you noticed a trend in the time that you've been working at an academy level of players kind of coming out the other end who are more psychologically aware than, than the traditional footballer? And is that, you know, ultimately seeing a shift at the, at the professional end of the game in terms of players being more interested in the psychological side of things? I think so. I think it's probably um, important to recognise that that pathway to come through an academy and get into the first team is a long process. It can, you know, you may be talking, you come in at, you come in at seven or eight uh, or five if you're at Arsenal and you, um, you know, you, you probably won't be playing first team football until realistically, you, you may be, 18, 19, they might start to get in and around it then, uh, maybe even a little later. Um, so it, the reason why I said that is having only been at the club seven years, you've kind of seen half of that. Um, so for the, the players who've probably experienced psychology support at a very young age, around foundation phase, so kind of nine, 10s, 11s, they've um, definitely noticed it with those who experienced it more at the white youth development phase of so 14, 15, 16. Um, they have gone on to, you know, seemingly apply it well and are open to having those types of conversations. Uh, hopefully that will continue to get better. I think, I think another thing as well is that psychological support a lot of the time, I think when it's done well, is that kids probably don't realise it's happening. Yeah. You know, you, you can do good psychology through helping coaches coach better. You know, so, you know, we, we, we like to kind of upskill our coaches as much as possible to be able to deliver, I guess, psychologically informed sessions that develop some of these skills that they need without it being psychology as such. I just did the, uh, the little thing with my fingers there around the word psychology and then realized it's a podcast. Um, but, you know, that effective psychology, you know, kids might not realize it's happening, but ultimately they are coming out of, of the system um, I'd like to say better place but I don't have much to compare it to they are they're coming out well placed I think uh, to be able to perform consistently at a very high level and the, the other caveat of that is given the numbers that within an academy system because a fraction of a percent of a of an age group I've got a, a very small chance of making it to the highest level in football um, those psychological skills, if done right, are very transferable. So they really, they really do hopefully add quality to, to life and benefit whatever happens post-transition out of the sport. I think that's a really important point, Andy, that, that, that when it's done well, it's the norm. 
and it's not seen as being something scientific or something that you have to kind of set time aside to do it just becomes part of the kind of you know activity in and around the club for the individual yeah very much so in terms of kind of psychological support for elite players um i thought it was an, an interesting case study this week in, in kind of public perceptions of kind of elite player psychology so um pierre Amerik Aubameyang was disciplined this week by by Mikel arteta which was dropped from from the Arsenal squad. And and the reaction's been been really interesting. It'd be really good to get your thoughts here, guys, because quite a lot of the attention is focused on the the kind of assumption that after Aubameyang signed a contract in, in September 2020, he's, he's kind of effectively down tools. So I think since then he's scored 10 goals in in 35 league games, um, which, which is a which is a quite a, quite a dramatic fall off from, from where he was previously. But I so, say, Mark, maybe starting with you, how much credible evidence is there to support claims that, you know, financial security, so a player on a long-term contract, means that there's a, a drop-off in a, in a player's motivation? Motivation is complex and uh, complicated for particular individuals as well. It, 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 I'm not even sure that we might be able to articulate what our motivations are personally. You know, um, so I think motivation is a is a difficult topic. This is this is a long preamble to me saying I basically don't know, but uh, I'll, I'll I'll keep I'll keep going I'll keep going with this. So, so I think th- there's a challenge here because I think if you think about footballers and uh, professional sports people, footballers in particular, you know, they're highly motivated, talented individuals. So they they are going to be attracted and and require um, you know incentive. Um, so if you think about sort of footballers in particular, they are going to be attract highly talented people. They are going to be attracted to incentive laden, financially rewarding contracts. You know, the, it's both a recognition of their expertise and also a recognition of their competence. You know, the famous quote by by Ashley Cole when um, I think he was offered a new contract by Arsenal, um, and you know he said he nearly crashed the car at the at what he was offered. It wasn't. The money in and of itself, because it was a substantial sum of money, it was what he thought the club said about him. So it's no surprise that, you know, in a motivated setting, individuals highly motivated require recognition for their performance. A big contract would be relevant. In some circumstances, that can lead to a loss in motivation. And anecdotally, there are lots of individuals, or not lots, there are many individuals probably known within the game who in the final year of their contract, their performance improves and then drops off once they get that contract. But the need to offer those large contracts, the need to offer those big contracts is probably in and of itself a positive for the game as a whole because of the positive benefits that it gives for the motivation of a particular individual as a recognition of their competence. And if we think about motivation very broadly, having said it's complicated, it probably comes down to these three things, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. We tend to be motivated when we feel connected to the people around us. That's uh, not separate from money. It can be, uh, but uh, but it's, it's something else where we feel um, uh, as though we have some sense of say or autonomy over over what we're doing and um, where we have a sense of competence that we feel as though we're, um, we're getting better, we can demonstrate the skills to the best of our ability. So being at a good club, we feel connected to the people around you and you feel as though you've got some uh, degree of autonomy is usually the way to uh, increase motivation. So um, I don't know is the short answer, which I gave at the start, but I think my general point is it is possible that that is the case. Performance is complicated, so lots of other things could be going on that we don't know about. It's possible that is the case, but in and of itself, the offering of large contracts for individuals within football is probably not a problem for everyone. I think that point about recognition, Mark, is a really interesting one. I've certainly read lots of things about, you know, the very, very, very elite players. Often a lot of people say things like, you know, why does Cristiano Ronaldo 
you know, why is he bothered about getting paid another 50 grand a week? And actually, the answer I've always read in, in a lot of interviews is because it's where they see themselves in the, in the kind of hierarchy of the top 10 players in the world. Money is part of that recognition. So it's, it's about a pride in their ability and how they think they compare to other people, as opposed to the actual kind of financial reward, which is obviously past a certain point, ceases to really make too much difference to their lives, I guess. Um, Mark, I was interested in that thing you said around it, it being a common trend or a noticeable trend about players performing well well in the last year of their contracts I guess there's that old saying isn't there you know putting yourself in the shop window what effect on motivation does that 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 precipice I guess of having a little bit of uncertainty about your future I guess that brings in kind of some of the work that you've done around threat and fear possibly how does that impact on motivation yeah so um when I said it was a common trend, and I apologise if I used that, you know, certainly there are some individuals who I think are known for uh, for doing that, and you can see that happen. Um, I think that that issue around challenge and threat and um, playing to win versus playing not to lose, I think is a is a really interesting, um, uh, really interesting topic. It's not related, but my favourite uh, or one of my favourite statistics is uh, from work by uh, Guy Jordet, who's a specialist in penalty taking, and he found that individuals who were taking a penalty kick to stop their team losing, only got 62% of them. When a footballer was taking a penalty kick so their team could win, the success rate was 92%. I just like that as a, as a statistic that illustrates the, the difference between playing to win and, and playing not to lose, if you like. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at in, uh, uh, <clears throat> in, that, in that particular question, that we have different motivational factors that come into play. So when we're trying to achieve something, and some of the work that we've done has been around challenge states where individuals' psychophysiological response to stress is slightly different compared to individuals who are threatened. And the particular things that we're interested in are um, the cardiovascular reactivity. I don't want to bore you too much, but it's the amount of blood that goes to the heart over a minute and then the constriction or dilation of the, of the blood vessels. If we're challenged, um, and when we are challenged, we have a balance between the demands that we perceive and the resources that we have. So you're asking me to do something that's actually quite difficult, quite demanding. I've got to play for a new contract. If I think I can achieve this, if I think I have the qualities, then we get the challenge response. Increasing cardiac output, amount of blood going to the heart, dilation of the blood vessels. It's an approach response. I feel as though I can cope with these demands and I, you know, I'll go out there and I'll show you. Where we're threatened, we see little or no change in the amount of blood going to the heart, but the blood vessels constrict. That's the physiological response. How that manifests itself is in terms of avoidance behaviours. You know, I don't think I can deal with this. It's, uh, it's too much for me. I don't think I have the resources to cope with the demands of playing for a new contract or, or performing for a big club like um, Tottenham Hotspur or whatever it, uh, uh, whatever it might be. And in that situation, it's an avoidance response. You see people sort of play within themselves. They play not to lose. They don't put themselves in positions to ask for the ball. And those types of behaviours manifest themselves. So I think, you know, it's one of the really interesting areas is this, is this distinction between playing to win and playing not to lose, a challenge state or a threat state. Now, how that manifests itself is individually different and really depends on people's perceptions of the patterns of the demands and resources. Do they think they can cope with it? That manifests itself physiologically in the way the body responds to demands but also psychologically and behaviorally in terms of how you see people playing out on the, on, on the field there so you see lots of people in different stages of contracts different demands placed upon them new managers coming in it's such a complex ever-changing uh, environment is you know football and that's just the club that you're in you've then got to think about the opponents and the demands of the league that you're in and how that changes over time so it's a really complicated picture and people are always making judgments of success depending on whether they think they can cope with what they are faced with i guess what what that articulates i think is it, it's about how the how a player frames um, coming into the last year of their contract. There's probably players out there who see that as an opportunity to maybe get a move or maybe get a bigger contract. In which case, there's you know there's the challenge response. I suppose there's players, and this is probably more common further down the league pyramid as well, where actually it's a threat to your livelihood. You're wondering if the next contract you're going to get is going to be at a smaller club, at a, at a lower level, and, and I guess that could create some of that avoidance response that you're describing. So I think that does articulate something that we can understand in terms of how players might respond uh, Andy uh, just just out of interest yeah how how does this play out on on the training pitch so, so to speak you know what what using that theory that, that Mark's talks about there what what kind of techniques do do you employ to make sure that players are, are motivated 
I remember a colleague of mine at the IS, Gilmore, told me this great, uh, great story that really resonated with me um, because it, it was about uh, new parents and being motivated to get up and feed their child. And there's someone whose youngest daughter didn't sleep for two years, the first two years of her life. And I say it really struck a chord. And he was saying the difference between commitment and motivation. And um, so to be, you know, parents aren't motivated to wake up three times in the night and go and feed the child and change a nappy, but they do it because they're committed to it. And it, it's more than just that thing that they're doing. It's, it's part of the bigger picture. Uh, and, and I kind of, I really like that. And it kind of taps into, I guess, a values-based approach around kind of what's important to us. Um, the work that I've done with players is kind of always, try, always tried to base um, Rather than use goals as something to try and achieve, um, more have values to set a direction of travel. So approaching things from a values-based perspective found really, really helpful. Um, so, for example, that might be, okay, what type of player do I want to be? Actually starting to look at, you know, internalizing that and then making that part of their identity. You know, who am I going to be in this moment? Or what kind of decision would this type of footballer make? Um, and, and make it, making it bigger than, than the money. I think that's, that's been um, really, really helpful. Again, that, that identity, you know, internalising the identity element as well, been a really powerful way of helping people break bad habits and, and develop new ones, um, kind of reframing their own identity, but always coming back to the values that drive the behaviour. Having said that, you still have stories where, there are very successful players who will run around on a, on a pitch and match day telling other players how much money they earn just to try and rattle them a little bit. And it does matter, it does matter to footballers because it, it's going back to the Ashley coping. It's about how they feel valued. It's, it's not about the money for most footballers, in my experience. It's about what that represents. Um, you know, and, and I would also say as well, footballers just, just want to play. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do some work with uh, one very well-known player who's played in the Premier League all of his career, uh, earned the type of money in a week that would take me years to earn. Uh, but he was, he was in a situation where he wasn't featuring for his manager's team and he just wanted to play. And I think we sometimes forget that. We look at these people and you know we see them on TV and we see them at football stadiums and, and we see them as footballers, but they are people who are doing the job very lucky to do a job that's that they love you know it's well paid but more importantly nine times out of ten it's a job that they love and there is a lot of um a lot of intrinsic motivation to be out on the grass playing football and i think just just the wider picture you do sometimes lose sight of that and it's quite an easy narrative i guess to kind of jump on that like, oh they've just got a big money contract now so they probably won't be motivated but I, actually generally in my experience, a lot of them are. A lot of them are. Andy, I think that's a really good point. Um, one of the things that we constantly do on this podcast is we kind of explore those classic sayings and perceptions that fans have of football, which kind of just oversimplify it and try and, and try and make it very black and white and easy to understand. And there's often a lot more complicated stuff going on. Like Mark, as you said, like you don't know the answer to things about motivation. Therefore, it should be, you know, fans should probably think about that when they just say, oh, you know, he's got a big contract, therefore he's not trying anymore because it's probably a lot more complicated than that. Andy, I wonder, um, we've, we talked a bit about young players and, and, and really interesting that the sort of values-based approach that you mentioned there. Do you think the new generation of footballers and, and I guess the new generation in general in society, do you think they're motivated differently to, to kind of older players? Um, potentially. It is a dilemma uh, myself and uh, a couple of colleagues we wrestle with uh, on a weekly basis. You know, we're 100% in the generation next category to the point where we've probably both read the book. But we're probably on we've gone full circle now we're probably on generation b or c i think it's come come and gone through the uh y's and the z's and stuff it's yeah it's difficult it is difficult um there are some fundamental similarities you know that that we all have with each other um you know but uh, again contextually it's different the uh i guess the social landscape's very different to what it used to be so that, that's a big challenge for us is, is trying to be able to adapt to that 
regularly and, and it's an ever-evolving landscape. So being able to adapt to that in a way that allows us to get the most out of the people we work with. Um, and like I said, that's a challenge. And Mark, Lee kind of mentioned traditional sayings and, and I, th- I think one of those is playing with without fear. Um, you know, there, there are teams that, that kind of, and players that are kind of constantly mentioned in, in, in that context. But kind of, again, just breaking that down, is there kind of a, a, any kind of theoretical basis that um, you kind of, you know, you hinted at it earlier, I think, to some extent, that, that certain teams are kind of able to play without fear? It's a really good question, actually. I, I, um, I'd be interested in Andy's um, thought, thoughts on this as well. I think th- there's two ways of approaching this. The, the first is that when expectations are are lower, you do often see some teams perform very, very well. So, and there's lots of sort of interesting data that suggests that as the stakes get higher in sports competition, people will tend to play a bit more conservatively. So golfers will tend to putt a bit more conservatively when the putt matters more. So they might leave it a bit short rather than giving a hitting the ball hard enough so that it definitely reaches the hole. So there's lots of other examples of that around, um, around sport as well. So as the stakes get higher, people do tend to play a bit more conservatively. So when you can remove the stakes when you lower the stakes or you lower expectations you can get a freedom of expression and a high level of performance one of the challenges with that is that i'd say two things one is of course fear in and of itself is not bad we can look at different responses to fear challenge states and threat states different responses to anxiety you know good anxiety bad anxiety all going back to hans Selly's work on eustress and distress And anxiety in and of itself can be a powerful motivator that when people feel nervous, that they feel as though they're under pressure, they can actually use that as a motivating factor. And anxiety and nerves and fear in and of itself can be helpful to performance. It's there as a a response to help us manage the demands that we're faced with. So I think there's one thing to say about that, that uh, fear in and of itself isn't bad. So certainly removing it, um, you don't have to remove it to play well. I also recognize that individuals when expectations are low can play well, but you don't have to remove the fear because one of the difficult things or the holy grail, if you like, is is to be able to play well when the expectations and the demands are high. Because imagine a situation where you don't have high expectations, but you perform well. What happens then is that expectations will change and individuals um, will from the crowd, from the managers, from the players themselves, were suddenly thinking, you know, we should win here. It would be dreadful if we lost to these people. They'll come up with some of those uh, phrases uh, that are perhaps less helpful. And so expectations do change, but you need to be able to manage and cope with the demands of high expectations if you are going to be at a successful football club. Now, it is possible to reduce to lower the expectations on players and some of the great managers are fantastic at, uh, at, at doing that and some of the techniques and strategies um, that, they've, uh, that they've used around team bonding and so on to, to maybe reduce the external pressure on teams. But it, it'd be interesting to get Andy's points because certainly you'd think that one of the difficulties or one of the challenges, rather not the difficulties, is that you have to learn or find strategies to be able to manage expectations of success. And interestingly, what you often see is some really nice interview data from athletes that when they achieve success, one of the things that changes is their own expectations of themselves. I I don't want to get a Welsh person into every uh, podcast, but I'll mention Terry Griffiths, a snooker player. He won in 1979, which is a long time ago now. But when he won the world championships, he said he was world champion now. So he had to play like a world champion and his expectations of himself rose. And because of that, he started to rework his technique after becoming world champion to increase his performance and his standards even higher. When you think about it, that's really, really interesting and, and, and a bit strange that he, he became world champion playing a certain way, but his expectation of himself changed. He tried to remodel his technique, his form dropped off a cliff, and, and then he went back to his old way of playing. And there are lots of examples of individuals across different sports. When they achieve success, they think 20, or 50 million pound striker shouldn't miss those chances. 
40 million pound defender shouldn't be beaten at the near post by a striker going across them. They change their expectations um, of themselves. And the challenge for the players, the managers, the teammates and all the support staff is to help people live, cope and thrive with those high expectations. Andy, what's your take on that? Because uh, Blackburn are probably a club that um, has certainly benefited this season, probably from slightly lower expectations to what they were used to in previous seasons. Um, I was listening to the to the BBC over the weekend and Bradley Johnson was being interviewed saying exactly that, that the, the group this season under Tony Mowbray, you know, there was slightly less expectation about what what, the, what they could achieve this season. And, and that's kind of taken the shackles off a bit. And, and, and he was he was putting some of the success that Blackburn are having this season down to that. What, what, what's your view? And my first view is I've got to be very careful how I answer this question. Um, <laughs> my second view um, <laughs> is, is, is no, there's a lot, there's a lot in that, uh, and I completely agree with, with everything that Mark's just said as well. I think you start looking around playing without fear, and you kind of where fear exists, you tend to get uh, the process behind it. There's, there's that emotional, instinctive reaction, that that threat state. There's a threat appraisal. There's, and then, and then usually there's defensive behaviours that follow. So the sorts of behaviours that um, may inhibit performance um, for fear of evaluation or uh, expectation, as Mark said. Um, the if we were to frame fear as anxiety, as like a an anxiety-induced emotion, almost. Um, don't know if that's a, the right phrase, but anxiety creates noise in performance, and, and I think the holy grail of psychology to get someone to focus on the right thing at the right time and the noise that that anxiety creates inhibits that process so you know you, you take a first team football environment where is the anxiety coming from you know it's coming from the environment you know is it the dressing room are you suddenly thinking well actually i've got someone who's, who's fighting for my shirt and my team if i underperform am i going to lose my place um you know the contract issues we talked about um, the judgment, the manager can say all he wants about managing expectations within the dressing room and play everything down. But the moment you walk out that tunnel, there'll be 50,000 people there expecting you to perform. So how do you manage that? So being able to get a team or a group of individuals to focus on the right thing at the right time is, is kind of the way you probably want to be approaching that. And you can flip it as well. So rather than playing without fear if you're not if you're playing without fear what are you playing with you know what what what's the inverse of that you know so reframe it well actually it's probably playing with clarity with purpose with intent uh playing with commitment around a shared i guess a shared mental model of, of how the group is going to perform you know so so addressing that side of things to, to, to me is really important and have a clear understanding around what we should be doing at uh any given point and i know there's been footballers recently uh, in Premier League teams who've said it's like we don't know what we should be doing. Uh, and that, to my mind, is what people allude to when people say, oh, they're playing, you know, they're playing with fear. So anything you can do to reduce that anxiety. Um, so, you know, the reduced expectation of, of maybe slightly underperforming last season, perhaps, in Blackman's case. You know, that, that's led to reduced expectations this season, which... It's probably allayed a lot of that anxiety and allowed people to focus on the right thing at the right time more often. And that's how you get a better performance. Really interesting that you talk about anxiety because I suspect that, that, that with, with COVID cases on, on the rise, there might be players out there that are becoming a little bit more anxious about taking the field or, or training with colleagues, you know, just from kind of, your your kind of perspective what what kind of are you seeing at the moment in terms of you know how how players are re- reacting to, to kind of what's what's going on with covid at the moment i mean i i'd, I'd come back to the point around players are humans they're, they're just like you and me and and the, the scale of reaction is, is no different to i would imagine to my mind and any sample of the population you take you, you get all sorts of people who aren't bothered you will have individuals who are generally quite concerned. You will have people who it's had potentially a very big impact on their lives and their loved ones and their families. So, yeah, there's, there's varying levels of anxiety around that. Um, but ultimately, you know, and, and also the uh, clubs and the 
the leagues and, and all the organising bodies are, are doing everything they can to make it as safe as possible. And with that in mind, I think there's, there's still a job to do. So, that, you know, there's still performances that need to be delivered. So, again, managing that anxiety, again, like the motivation, you know, like all that we talked about, like all of this, it's very, very individualised. Um, but, you know, I think recognising again that the footballers are human, they are, they are people, and, and these things will play out accordingly. And Andy, it must be, um, you know, there, there is anxiety around obviously COVID and, you know, how, that, how that's affecting day-to-day life and, and family and things like that. I imagine a, a big issue uh, in a sporting setting like a football club is actually uncertainty more than anything else. I mean, f- football clubs are well known for being very regimented, very organised. Things happen at certain times. Everybody has a routine. And at the moment, this kind of game's being called off last minute, you know, new testing proce- procedures, different protocols to follow. That, that must really disrupt um, like the training ground in general. Uh, have you noticed that uh, in, in your work over the last couple of weeks? Um I mean, it does have certainly has potential to do that. Um, I mean, a lot of these procedures that are probably coming back into place were in place 18 months ago. So they're not necessarily all that new. Um, you know, all of a sudden, everyone's wearing face masks again. Okay, right. Yeah, well, there's a small period of readjustment to it. But, you know, we've all been there before. We're kind of all a bit more comfortable with it this time around. It, it, it's less of a jump. Um, I think around the you know, things change and it's, it's sport is very much, you know, historically we've always focused on, it's all about the process, you know, just focus on the process. Score will take care of itself, you know, don't think about the outcome, just just do that. All right, so if you, if, where there's uncertainty, it kind of needs to be met with adaptability and adaptability is all about focusing on the outcome and finding a process to get that. Um, so almost flipping it on its head. So, you know, what, what do we need to do? Well, we need to make sure that the squad stay healthy, stay safe, and they are able to train and then perform as and when required. Brilliant, right? So what does that involve? We can go and do that um, rather than rather than focus on the processes. The other thing is as well is speaking to that uncertainty and acknowledging that uncertainty rather than pretending it's not going to happen. You know, that's, that's really important too. So, you know, this may or may not happen. This this could have or couldn't change. Uh, you know, so be prepared for those instances. But then, conversely, where is the certainty? Well, actually, we know that we can train in the morning and we can train normally. Um, you know, so we focus on that and do that right. So looking where the certainty is, um, I guess, acknowledging the uncertainty creating support for, for those who are potentially going to find it a difficult period. Uh, but ultimately, you've got to roll with the punches. Guys, just before we, we sign off, I just wanted to, to just get a really quick view from, from you both on, um, on some comments from Ralph Ranyik recently, who, um, who's kind of come out and appointed, well, one of his first kind of public moves, been to appoint a, a dedicated sports psychologist at, at Manchester United for, for the first time in, in, in a long time. And in the context, certainly of the British game, anyway, it's quite, um, I think, quite refreshing to see a manager talk really candidly about the value of, of performance psychology. Um, Mark, maybe starting with you, I, I don't know if you had any kind of thoughts on on those comments. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a positive from... Um... From my perspective, I think um, I'll say one quick thing. I think what's really been interesting is having worked in different performance domains. Um, that people have looked to sport and seen the use of sports psychologists in sport, and actually started to see that transfer to to other domains. Actually, you know, some of those. So, sport has led the way in many ways in terms of um, developing uh, sports psychology, and then the underpinnings of, of, a, of a broader performance psychology. I think it's positive. I think all publicity is good for sports psychology. You know, people like Andy make a, make a difference in, in their work in um, professional football clubs. And the, and the greater the, the publicity and the more 
times this is normalized in the press, which it is, and the stories are reported in a very different way to what they would have been 15, 20 years ago. You can, you can imagine the, uh, um, the headlines 20 years ago might have been Wacky Ralph Brings in Mind Guru. It wasn't, <laughs> it, 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 that wasn't the headline now. It's reported in a very much matter-of-fact way. I think it, it um, highlights the profession in a positive manner. It uh, normalizes, uh, normalizes the work. And, and, and for me, you know, working in sports psychology and um, working with other sports psychologists, the more this is normalized, I think is, uh, is better and a positive uh, occurrence. Andy, I don't know if, if, if you had any kind of views on, on that. Yeah, I, I, I kind of echo Mark's sentiments there, really. I think, you know, it, it's great that it's, it's a, a bit of a good news story, if you will, uh, for the discipline. It's, it's out there. But it, I mean, it's, it's not new. It's, it's happened in lots of other top flight clubs uh, around the country with some very, you know, some of, some of this country's best sports likes have worked, have worked with some of the top teams. Uh, it's maybe not been as, as commonly known. I just really look forward to the day where this isn't news. For me, that, that, that's, the, that's the slightly bitter edge to this, is where I think this is a thing, and it shouldn't be. You don't hear football clubs making big announcements saying they've brought in a new physio. I think when we get to that point, I think we know as a discipline, uh, we've done a good job um, where the sport has really bought into us and, and it, it's commonplace. And I think, I think that's what we need to aim for. And I think, I think we kind of, again, as a discipline, sports psychology needs to be working towards this. I mean, we've definitely said that on this show a thousand times, Andy. Like, actually, the idea that, you know, if a football club announced that they've got a big data department, that would just not be news anymore, would it? That, you know, that's such a normalised part of the game now on the tactical side. It feels like, you know, the next step for sports psychology is that that is just an accepted part of the setup of a football club. Exactly. And, and, it, and it might be, um, there may be a reason why this was made public. So, like I said, I know other Premier League winning teams have had embedded sports like in place but you know if you look at the previous managers at Man United where it has been overtly frowned upon then uh, it's it's kind of maybe there's a little bit of that and they're making an issue of it but at the same time the fact that it's a story doesn't surprise me uh, long may it continue and, and hopefully it, it stops being newsworthy in time yeah, I think Ranić was quite interesting in, in, you know, in terms of exactly what he said when he kind of talks about it just being being logical in his eyes. He seemed kind of quite unfazed um, as as you you know as as a leading coach should be. So you know, hopefully that that actually permeates um, across the league. You know, in in instances where, where maybe the clubs aren't quite um, as forward thinking. Well, guys, thanks so much for your for your time today, Mark. Best of of luck with the the space expedition training really look forward to, to hearing how that that turns out thank you very much it's a space expedition on the ground in, on earth so I, I might have oversold it a bit but uh, no it's uh, yeah th- thank you very much for uh, that and thanks very much for the invite today and, and Andy best of luck for for the rest of rest of the season at, at Rovers oh, thank you very much thanks for the invite and and we will take gladly take all the luck we can get so thank you very much <laughs> 